somebody just texted me to tell me that my sister's on a show and then captured a picture of her. And I was like, that's not my sister. And he's like, are you sure? And I was like... <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey there. How's everybody? Good. I just got back from being out of town. I was in Minneapolis. Oh, I was in Amsterdam. Who wins? <laughs> or how cold is it in Amsterdam? Oh, actually. It was beautiful. Jason, um, what trip have you taken recently? I was in Chicago. Oh, I definitely win. Uh, <laughs> I definitely win. So Minneapolis, was it yeah. cold there? You know, it was. And then Did I you do any of the print stuff? You were right there. I've done the print stuff. I did, I did the print stuff before. I was thinking to myself, this is going to be my last. I was go. I was there for a board meeting, and I thought to myself, this is my last board meeting. I've been in this board for six years, and while it was fantastic, I was done last year. But um, I did the print stuff the last time I was there, so it was really great. That's a really that's a fun place to visit. What, is, um, what does that mean? I've been to Minneapolis several times. I'm certainly aware Prince lives lives there, but I, I don't know what it to, means to do the print stuff. You can go to Paisley Park. You can go to Paisley Park. You can go to his home where he used to record, and um, you can look at. They've got his outfits there. Um, they've got the place his where his tiny he, outfits, his very tiny outfits, He's and a then tiny he, man. He used to do like surprise yeah. concerts there, so you've got the concert hall. Where I did hear about there. that, but I didn't know yeah. you could just like go there. I didn't realize you could go and visit, but they wow. confisc- they confiscate your phone, so there's actually no image of Paisley Park that. I thing. love like, that. Oh, it's, I it's, love it's, that. Visiting so Lennon's tomb. That's I know, isn't crazy. that crazy? There's no postings of it on Twitter unless you're able to sneak some stuff in. There's no way because they actually confiscate your phone. And they I love there's after. experience. That hasn't been completely co-opted by social media. I love I know. that. It's actually really great. I'm actually thinking about that more and more, and I think that's actually really great. Like I, like I don't know. I mean, I like to take images of things too, but there's something sort of profoundly special about knowing that you can only experience that by visiting it. That's like um, the Sistine Chapel is also like that. You can't take pictures in there. Oh no, they'll talk you right to the floor. That's usual. I mean, do are you, you're allowed to take pictures on the way there, though? I guess you can take pictures of everything, every, the entire Vatican Museum, and then you go up some some weird ass stairs down like a utility hall, and then there's a Sistine Chapel just like there, and you're not allowed to take pictures in there. Pretty yeah. guards everywhere, and if you even look like you are about to, they yeah. uh, they come right over. They don't. You know the thing is though, talking about like having things co-opted by social media, it's really. I find that like, I don't know if it's the times, or I don't know if it's the people that I know, but recently I had like a party and I sent out invitations in the mail. Cause I was just like, you know what? I don't want to do like an Evite. I don't want to put it on Facebook events. I just want like old school. Like you, like I'm having a party. Mm-hmm. Like you get, you get an invitation in the mail. Like I invited 35 people, like roughly 10 to 15 of them texted me, Facebook messaging, Snapchat, like, <laughs> I don't have the invitation. Where's your party? What's it for? And when is it? And I was like, I, I, I send something to your home. Like, it's, <laughs> you have it. You have all the info. I, 
I, I have no virtual idea. Virtual reality is the only reality. The, the material be... has no value anymore. <laughs> you messed them up, though. <laughs> and I messed it up. And I, I, I messed people up. And I was like, well, maybe am I the dinosaur, like, trying to fight this new age? Maybe I love it. To let everybody know, like, if you're having a wedding, like, just put a Facebook event. Let people RSVP that way. <laughs> I suppose a lot I don't cheaper know. than wedding invitations. I'll tell you that. <laughs> the hell a lot cheaper. I thought it was cute. I made this cute invitation. It had a nice font on it. It went out, but you know, at the end of the day, people just looked at it, threw it out, and then promptly forgot about it because they didn't get it. An <laughs> and then called you. I was like, "What are we supposed to do? Where do we meet?" <laughs> okay, can I just? I want to ask you something. What? Uh, on the same tip, I'm having a party, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say the party starts at eight o'clock. I get a text, a series of texts between 7 and 9.30, which is people either hemming or hawing or asking for my permission for them not to come to the party. Uh-huh. Is, is that just a me thing? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, well, I know exactly what you're talking about because I was at I, your I never know how to respond. party that was actually on your birthday, which you now have made secret. You were saying the same thing. I was with you and you kept getting these texts and you were saying the exact same thing you're saying right now. Am I the weirdo? Is is there a way you're supposed to respond to this? Like, I got a message from someone who was like, "So I was invited to another party." Dot dot dot. What is my? What am I supposed to say to that? I don't respond to those texts. Just don't respond to those texts unless the text. If you look at the text and the text is asking you for definitive information that you feel comfortable providing, like I don't also don't understand people who text you like a half an hour before your party to ask where it is or how to get there or any of those kinds of things. Like, no, I'm not responding. Or if it's okay if they don't. See, but that is annoying, but I get it, right? Yeah. But don't text me half an hour before and ask me if it's okay if you don't come. Just don't come. (laughs) You're an adult. I'm I'm not taking attendance. (laughs) This is past fail. To me, the, the response is no worries. Oh, that's my favorite response, which is such a fantastically horrible lie. No worries. <laughs> no, I no, but I I will go a step further. I, when I when I say it in that context, I think it's a way. This is going to sound terrible, even as I say it. But it's like it's a it's a way to say your message seems to suggest that I will notice and be particularly concerned that you don't show, and actually <laughs> I won't. Wow. Arch. Wow. <sighs> Actually, that's pretty right. That's actually no, but you know what? Kind of what it means. It's like no worries. We're making fun of you, but it's true. Like I'm at a party, my party. Like I'm not (laughs) concerned in this moment. In this moment, I'm not concerned that you're not here. I probably haven't noticed yet. Honestly, I probably won't notice until later. I really won't notice until I go home and look at the invite list and be like, oh yeah, so and so didn't come. What a great time we had without that person. Yes. And the presumption that not only have I missed you at this party and I'm waiting for you, but the willingness of that I want to participate in a discussion with you during the party <laughs> <laughs> about whether you should come to said party is, is the presumption is incredible. Very presumptuous. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, to go a step further, you could say, OMG, did I invite you to this party? <laughs> Because by the way, if I did, you should already be here. Everyone else is. Move on. No, um, I have party. I have party nightmares, so I don't really. I had a I had a party in high school for my graduation, and like 
all these people promised to show up and only like one pe- person showed up and all of my family members. So now I totally don't expect party comrade to work for me. I don't have parties. That happened to me too, Trisha. <laughs> I did it. Like, my graduation party from high school, one yes, person showed up. Totally. One person. Well, I'm, I'm still looking for her. Her name was Liz Tope. <laughs> I'm naming names. I'm like, if you ever make an appearance in the world in any way, shape, or form, I really. She was like my one main friend in high school because I was bust. I was bust into high school, so there was no way I was hanging out before school, and there was no way I was hanging out after school either. Yeah, yeah. So it was just, it was just too long. And so I had this one cool friend that I hung out with all the time, and she was the lone person who trucked her way all the way from Northeast to come to my high school graduation party. But the family members ate a lot. But it was like, I we actually went all out for this party. We like had it at like this little Navy base. It was really cute. We were expecting people to show <laughs> and up. one person showed and up. And one person. And all these people promised to show up and all this jazz, which is why I'm looking at people who reach out to me from high school. I'm like, whatever, dude. I don't remember you showing up to my party. <laughs> Trisha, where, where did you go to high school? Northeast. Northeast High School. Philly. Oh, it's called uh, Northeast High School. Got it. Northeast High School. At the time, that was like a big thing. It was like Northeast High School, the top three schools. And if you're lucky, you get into one of the top three schools and then the busing began and I got into the third one. So I traveled 90 minutes every day each way. But look at you now laughing all the way at the bank. I don't know if I'm laughing to any bank, but (laughs) I'm laughing. (laughs) (laughs) But I've always laughed. Yes. Okay, moving on. So today we've got a very special episode. As you know, Jason was not with us for like a year plus on the podcast. And the reason why is because he went to go work um, in the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos and the Trump administration. And he couldn't be on here talking smack about people. So uh, he took a leave of absence in that time. Trish and I had a scintillating season of outrageous. If you haven't listened to it, like Jason hasn't, uh, go back and listen to the old episodes. Um, some might say it was better than the first season. I don't know. Uh, in any case, everyone wants to know, like, what the hell was Jason doing? Um, he just decides to go work for Trump and now he just comes on back. Uh, well, what you don't know is that while he was working um, for the Department of Education, uh, we recorded a couple of podcasts, and we are going to play part of it now. This is this was recorded in February of 2017, shortly after Trump took office. Jason laid out a bunch about what he was doing, why he took the job, how he got the job, and what the Department of Education does, and on the condition that we don't release it until he left the job. And as of last week, he's left that job, so now <laughs> we're free to air this. So uh, listen to this. Learn some stuff, and then we are going to come back to the present day and check in with Jason about his time uh, in the Department of Ed. Now hear this. He wasn't allowed to talk about any of this stuff, um, at least not air it publicly. But now that he's no longer working there, we can do whatever the hell we want. So, and, uh, You need um, to put a date on that. It's February 26, 2017. I, I, oh, yeah, 2017. Oh, I... <laughs> Honey, I'm sure you're not going to have this job until 2018. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is – there are plenty of people – plenty of reason why we why that is Plenty case, of but. reason. But, <laughs> you know, one of the reasons why we want to do this snapshot time capsule is just because, you know, Jason works for Donald Trump 
arguably the worst president in American history. You know, it, just personally, Jason, I know there, I mean, there were tensions here. Uh, I'm sure there were tensions in your life because I don't know how you live your life. And then suddenly you wake up one day, you're like, hey, everybody, going to go work for Trump. Uh, what What the hell, Jason? Yeah. Um, well, you know, you two have kind of been along for the ride in the sense that I, I remember when I got the call to go interview at Trump Tower, we were recording five minutes later. And so I don't know if you remember, but yes, I do you remember. called Chris to start and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And you were like, what, what, what? Well, I, listen, I can tell you my reaction. Dude, what the fuck? Are we going to have to cut this guy loose? Oh. <laughs> and the answer was yes. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. No, no so, so from the first call I got and then throughout the process, um, you know, my, my uh, and I, I posed this question explicitly to the different people I, I kind of interviewed with. It was like, I, I was like, if this is an opportunity, to actually make positive change for kids in our country, then I'll do it. If it's not, then I won't. Like and I, I actually, in the, in the interview in Trump Tower, which by the way, was not with Trump, just to be clear, I, I still have not met Trump. And I think it's likely I never will, which is fine with me. I'll say two things. So the first person who called me about the job, who's someone I, I already knew, but not well, you know, he, he asked me on the phone, and it was, it was like a five minute conversation, but it was like the first conversation with someone who was on the transition team about a possible job. He called me. He asked me if I'd be potentially interested. I told him what I just told you. And he said, I got to ask, no judgment. Are you a super pro-Trump guy? And I said, I'm a registered Democrat. No, I'm not a super pro-Trump guy. And he said, that's fine. Uh, The position I was thinking about you for probably won't work if you're not. But if you're interested, there may be another job like in the Department of Education or something. So I'll, you know, I'll look into that and, and get back to you. And thanks, like, really appreciate it. And then a few days later, I got an email from him saying, after further reflection on our conversation, I think you would be the ideal candidate for the position that he and said on the phone he was thinking about me for, but I, I wouldn't be good because I wasn't super pro-Trump. And to this day, I don't know what changed over three days that changed his mind about that. But in that same email, that's when he said, you know, we'll have you in for an interview. He told me who to contact. I contacted someone and I was invited to Trump Tower. So then at Trump Tower, the two guys who interviewed me, they're just asking me really very basic, like strange questions. Like, what was your first job? What did you learn on that? It was very strange. But they clearly read my resume. And so they asked me stuff about my resume. And, and we weren't talking politics or ideology or anything. So then the last question that they asked was and this was the first time like any you know the my the conflict between my politics and trump's you know the president-elect at the time the question was this is how he said it we know that you disagree with the president on social issues those were his words we just want to make sure that you won't resign loudly for a decision the president makes that doesn't have to do with education and i said well I'm an expert on exactly one issue, which is education. I have strong mm-hmm. feelings about other issues, but that's what I'm an expert on. And then I said what I just told you, if, if I can actually make a positive impact on kids in the country, I would be willing to do the job. I said, if I don't feel like I'm able to do that at some point in the job, I will leave the job, but I won't leave loudly for something that has nothing to do with education. And he said, okay, thank you. And then three days later, I was called saying I was selected for the job. 
Yeah. I want, they must ask that question of everyone, really. Because it's like, while that Muslim band is going to happen, are you going to be okay? <laughs> yeah, no, that's what they're we're asking. About to go yeah. Some egregious things that will not play well publicly. And so we just want to make sure <laughs> that your conscience is going to be able to remain clear or, or right, on right. focus, right? Yeah. So my, my, so leaving that interview, I mean, I felt, even though like at every stage, as you both alluded to, like, I, yeah, this has been a, a lot of soul searching and talking with friends and thinking about things. But like, I actually, you know, from that moment on, every conversation I had, both before and since I started, I've just always been probing to try to get a sense of, can I truly have a positive impact on kids in the country in this job? And I continue to this moment to feel like I can. I'm probably not as much as I'd like, but like, I feel like I actually, the things that I would like to see happen for kids in the country, I'm going to be, I'm going to have a better chance of, of effecting in this job than not in it. So I'm going to push back on you directly and forcefully. I, you know, Trisha had said this eloquently in many podcasts ago, uh, in one of the episodes after you left. This is the kind of monster that you don't work with. You destroy it completely. In the sense that if you are on a ship, right, and someone is punching holes in the hull, but you have a drinking glass and you are quickly trying to shovel the water out, someone is going to win that battle and someone is going to lose because someone is better equipped to do the thing that they are trying to do. So while you're saying that you went into this because like you want to do good for the edu- for kids education in the country, I mean isn't that a little naive since the people at the top have already made motions that the reason why they installed this particular secretary of education is because she didn't know much about it and she would help them dismantle the department entirely. So there are a lot of things there. So one, in the period after that interview, but before I was in the job, I had a meeting with the the guy who is the the guy the edu- he's like my counterpart on the domestic policy council. So he's the White House's guy who's on that policy council generating policy. I'm the White House's guy in the Department of Education making sure that policy can be implemented like it's that kind of thing. He is a Republican, but I had heard really good things about him. I met with him at my former place of employment while I was still working there. I invited him and I wanted to ask him a lot of questions. In that conversation, it became clear that like on education policy issues, we were very aligned. Trump on the campaign trail had made the statement the Department of Education needed to be eliminated or cut way, way back. I I guess after every election, there's a la- there, there are these teams called landing teams that are formed. And so this is, these exist election day and inauguration, and then they go away. And they're, they're people who volunteer to go in on behalf of the president-elect, study what's going on in each agency. So there's like a landing team per agency. And, and like, write, like, like basically take notes and decide like, and see what's not from like a purely operational point of view. And, and they call these change initiatives, what change initiatives are needed, both in some cases to improve efficiency and effectiveness, again, operational point of view, and to align with the president-elect's agenda. So there was an education landing team. It was a bunch of people who had worked in previous Republican administrations in the Department of Education and some other people. And there were a lot of people around the table to this day. I don't know who they were. 
and and that's a whole other conversation. There, it was just shocking the amount of contention. I mean, they, these people disagreed with each other vehemently. Again, these were all Republicans, vehemently on certain aspects. It was a fascinating conversation. But one of the things that came up was this issue, and there were clearly at least there was at least one person who spoke up, maybe others who didn't, who absolutely were like. What's you know, we have to chart the path to the elimination of the department, which, by the way, you may know, like Republican candidates for president have said that for years. And then it, it seemed like there were a lot of other people around the table that spoke up and said, like, either a that would be bad because there are kids like kids with disabilities that would not get an education. And, and other people who said, like, politically, we'll never get rid of the Department of Education. So so there was that kind of argument going on. There is no way the Department of Education is going away answer your, your your whole question but like that was one of the things i probed about in my you know as i was just considering whether to take the job that was one of the many things i heard that was like okay at least that in particular is like you know that seems off the table but the i, I guess to your larger point here's what i'll say and then i'll, I'll shut up you know my view is this administration is doing god-awful things they have Obviously, as we can see over the first month of the administration, prioritize certain things around, you know, especially immigration and some other things. My sense, and we, we did actually talk about this, I think, even on a podcast, like education, I think, is like barely. I mean, Trump talked about it because you have to when you run for president. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's paying a lot of attention. Now, the transgender stuff was raised to his to his level because there was a, a debate between sessions in DeVos, which they were not able to resolve. So I say all that to say, I still think because he doesn't care much about education and I think working with DeVos and I've now gotten to work with her pretty closely and I'm continuing to be convinced of this. Like, I think there's enough alignment between her and me. That's part of it. And then enough detail policy issues that she is just not terribly concerned about that I am and I see opportunity, that even in this god-awful administration, when god-awful things are happening around the country, like under, to some extent, cover of darkness, like I think I can potentially get some good education policy stuff going. I, I may be wrong. I'm not saying that like I have absolute conviction about it, but I think it's quite possible. Well, first of all, I want to know, what are the points of alignment between you and DeVos? Because I don't think a lot of people know her. I know yeah. what um her point of view may be that, and so a point of alignment is also interesting. But then I also um the other question is um I think regardless of whether you can actually see on the ground that this is that your actions are going to have any sort of that's going to help. I think the larger question, maybe Chris, that you were trying to get at is how do you genuinely convince the American people not to go down this road unless everything is just set up to fail in this administration and that any foot soldier in some sense is going to be contributing to that. I mean, that's, that's my question because it's, <laughs> I don't forgive me for being dramatic, but like, it's like a stormtrooper in the empire and star Wars being like, but you know, I, I, I want to make some positive change for the universe, for the galaxy. Well, that's not, that's not the whole bent of the organization you work for. Like it's just, that's just not at the end of the day, any success, any success that you find will be nullified or you'll be eliminated. 
because that's not what we're doing here. And and again, I don't want to be so dramatic. I mean, I say what you want about the administration. I'm sure they're not waking up every day being like, let's destroy America. They have an ideology. They think it'll be better basically for them and their friends. I understand that. So it's not good versus evil, but it is about like, it's about intent and what the agency intends to do. Jason, I want to, I want you to react to that. So first of all, I think it's important that I put all this in context of my own like journey professionally. So, you know, for 20 years, I have worked in the field of education first as a teacher, then as founding charter school principal, then as a nonprofit executive and as an advocate. One thing I can say is that I have found it incredibly frustrating. And I think both parties at the end of the day, both the Democratic and the Republican parties have been absolutely complicit. Lots of kids, disproportionately kids of color, disproportionately kids in poverty, not being educated. Both parties. Uh, for different reasons, in different ways. At the time, and you know, this is relevant. At the time I got the call in November, the first call about the position, I was incredibly frustrated and feeling cynical. You know, I'd worked mostly in Baltimore my whole career. I felt based on my work, my research, a whole host of experiences, it was clear to me, and it still is, the path to Baltimore actually educating the tens of thousands of poor black children in that city and some poor white children that don't get educated there. Mm -hmm. And no one Republican or Democrat in any position of influence was walking down that path. And, and I mean, I was in, I mean, these are people I know, like people I was engaged in conversation with people I was strategizing to influence. And even, and we don't need to talk about this. We can, I mean, even right now, I'm on daily conversations about what's going on right now in Maryland and in Baltimore. And I'm so incredibly frustrated by both parties because again, like they're mad at each other. They're constantly feuding. They're, they're, they're throwing out bills to fight against each other. To to cut to this, you're saying, you're saying the Democrats are as bad as the Republicans. No. What are you you saying? What are you saying? saying He's saying inefficiencies exist. Inefficiencies. Well, not just, no, it's not just inefficiencies though. It's not just inefficiencies. There are special interests on both sides. I, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say they're as bad as like, I don't, I don't even know how to quantify that. There are special interests on both sides and I'm talking about Baltimore, but I think this is true nationally. There are special interests on both sides that drive the agenda. And there are lots of other issues. I'm sure this is true too, but that drive the agenda and that our most vulnerable children lose every time because neither side's special interests are pursuing something that's in the interest of those kids. And I would say that's in the interest of the country because what's in the interest of the country as a collective is for those kids to receive an education. Like even if we don't, even for people don't give a shit about those kids, like our Mm -hmm. economy would be stronger. I think this is an objective fact. Our economy would be stronger. Our country would have less crime, et cetera. If those kids got an education, or like a real education that prepared them for college and or careers. And right now, there's nothing that gives me any hope that those kids are on the path to getting an education. So I say all that to say that, unfortunately, you know, like there's a lot of talk, like what if what if Hillary won on education? I, I was very concerned. You know, I voted for Hillary. I donated small amounts of money. Um, it must be fun to know, be able to say that now, huh? <laughs> you can't say that publicly otherwise. 
No, I can't. Although, it, you know, it was it was uncovered in Politico that I gave money to Obama. I was very concerned about a Clinton presidency vis-a-vis public education. This is like widely known in, for people who are, you know, engaged in education conversations at the national level on both sides, definitely among Democrats, too, that like she is extremely beholden and influenced by some special interests. It's not like there was like a phenomenal Republican candidate. To be very honest, Jeb Bush, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, so I didn't get to vote in the primary, but he would have had my vote. I, I, I'm not saying that if he was president, everything would be fine in education. But like I thought if just on that one issue, he was probably our best shot at getting better outcomes. Wow. Now, his his view of education, his approach to it, and he's I don't know if you know this, his day job now is he runs a nonprofit education organization. I mean, it is a. It is something that I think is very important. I mean, I've never met him, but all the signs would show that people on the right that really don't like his policies on education um, and think they're too far to the left. But I say all that to say that while, like for me, just looking at it from an education standpoint, this is not like, oh, we could have had a great education president. We ended up with this motherfucker, and, but maybe I'll work for him because maybe I can do good. It's actually that, like, again, I think we had a conversation about this. You know, there was talk and there was a quote on the political gab fest of, like, this is a moment that if you really care about something that, like, presidents don't typically care about, you might actually be able to do something. And the the example was given of, like, there are two obscure countries in Africa that, Mm -hmm. like, you think we could have better policy toward. This is a great time to enter the government because you'll probably get to do it because, like, the administration's obsessed with these other awful larger issues and, like, no one will care. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me, and again, full disclosure, like I may be wrong and I'm willing to quit if it turns out I'm wrong, but education is one of those areas where like we actually could do some good because A, paying a lot of attention to it and B, and again, I despise the guy, let's be clear, but he is not beholden to anyone on education. Like, you know, he kicked the Republicans asses in the primary and didn't have to sell out to any special interests on education. And he won in the general and didn't sell out to any special interests in education. For all those reasons, I still think it's possible to do good in education while so much bad is going on. But but let's talk about DeVos, though, because that to me is the most interesting and useful element. Honest to goodness, I think that what's going to happen is that you, in terms of just the functioning of this administration, that it will get so bad so fast that it'll be like a rotten apple that you're just going to have to pare around. And that's the change that people are going to have, which is it's a change. It's a negative change as opposed to a proactive, positive change. What do you mean? Um, Yeah. What do you mean? Talk more about that. What I mean by that is I believe that the Department of Education will become a skeleton of what it was and that many of the things that and that maybe you will get that change that you want, but it will not be a change that's built around trying to educate people, children better. It will just be a skeleton crew that has to just kind of cobble together a department moving forward. Because many of the people who I think have been appointed to lead some of the departments, I'm not certain about Devos, but in, the, in other spaces, they fought to curtail their whole lives yeah those very departments and so what you're going to end up with is sort of like a skeletal crew who are probably going to try to figure out how to get as much of the states to manage the aspects that the states that they've been you know that advocating states manage for a long time and that in some ways the federal government will just have very very um minuscule levers 
in which to sort of manipulate the office that they are overseeing. So it's like a boss that basically had an organization that were that was filled with maybe 50 people. And by the time the boss is done, they've ended up with 12. And that's been their, you know what I mean? That's the streamlined structure that they want. Yeah. And so that's my sense of what's going to happen for a lot of these departments. And so my question always is then, because I mean, even just now, just thinking of the federal government all in general and all the positions that are not filled and people are like, well, the government's still running. I'm like, are, but is it though? Do you know yeah. that? You don't <laughs> yeah. know that. You don't know what, you don't know the little things that aren't getting yeah. done because. And, and what does running mean? Right. What is exactly, you know, and so I think work every day, but like, are they doing their jobs? Like, yeah, that's a very valid question. Yeah. So so for me, the question around education, which I think you can sort of begin to answer for for us, is sort of what's your sense of um, the key issues or the key um, alignment for Devos? So can you give a little bit of a portrait of like, what do you think? Yeah. Well, so let me again, let me contextualize. Yeah. you will not hear this right now. Mm-hmm. There has been for quite a while, and certainly during Obama's eight years, a bipartisan resentment towards the Federal Department of Education. Now, for different reasons. The reality is the Federal Department of Education, why we have one, whether we should have one, there are strong feelings about that on both sides that don't line up along party lines and, and, and for different reasons. So Obama and Duncan first secretary under Obama and King secretary, second secretary under Obama, they set a lot of policy that had direct impact at the individual school and district level. The special interests behind both parties vis-a-vis education really didn't like that. Now, let me talk about that. The special interest that drives Democratic Party's agenda vis-a-vis education is the teachers unions. Mm. And the teachers unions don't want the federal government mandating education policy because the teachers union's power is in the state houses, although that was eroded significantly over the past couple of cycles, given the Republican wins in the state houses, but it's been in the state houses and in the local school board level. So local school board elections in almost every city and town in the country, like run them because they're the only ones that really contribute because it's just not important enough to any other interests. And so the teachers unions get contracts for the most part, for their members, which is their job. This is not a criticism. They get contracts for their members that are favorable. So they've got a lock. And I mean, again, that's an overstatement, but like that's where their power is. The the teachers unions backed Hillary against Obama in the 2008 primary strongly. Uh, And I, by the way, I mean, I just a side anecdote, like I had a fascinating conversation, which with the head of the Baltimore teachers union about this years ago, she was a delegate for Hillary. And we talked about it because she's African-American woman. The Baltimore Teachers Union's headquarters is literally in the same industrial park from the NAACP's national headquarters. And she had gone, gone to, the, that, to that convention and, and voted for Hillary. And, and the unions, the teachers unions, Obama, not only during that primary, but even after, because he was pro-charter school and most charter schools employ non-union teachers. So Democratic Party on education did not like Obama's approach. He was pro-charter. Duncan was pro-charter. King had founded a charter school network and was pro-charter. That's one. Now, teach, the charter schools is one issue. There's another issue that there was just, there are two other issues that the Democratic Party the, and the teachers unions were vehemently against Obama and Duncan and King. One of them is teacher evaluation. Teachers unions doing their jobs, protecting uh, job security for their members, 
really make an effort at local, state, and national levels to muddle teacher valuations because teacher valuations can lead to teachers losing their jobs. I, and I have seen this at every level. So Obama came out and said that if you want to get this money, and it was a lot of money that every state had a chance of getting, you know, this was during the stimulus, this was a big part of the stimulus, you have to have teacher valuations. And, and that is something that unions are so against because, you know, again, it can lead to their members losing their jobs. So they, I mean, this was a huge issue. I had a teacher at my school when I was at KIPP in Baltimore, who was our building rep, our building, our, the union rep for my teachers. And he came back from a meeting early on in the Obama administration and said to me that that union meeting, which I thought we were going to talk about work conditions and stuff, people screaming that Obama was the devil. By the way, all African-American because of that. Now, there, now then there's a the third issue, which is Common Core which is the standards and common core. And this is a whole other topic, but you know, it, it was not, it was not a national, the federal government did not come up with common core and it is not in federal policy. Never has been. And getting back to race to the top, they did tie the money to states adopting common core, which had been created by a consortium of states. Basically Obama and Duncan had said, this is good for our country. And we want to incentivize states doing this because a lot of states have dumbed down standards. And so, you want this money, you adopt Common Core. Teachers unions don't like it because one, again, it can be seen as a way to fire teachers if they're not teaching kids to achieve mastery of those standards or if they're just not even teaching the standards. And two, it's back to like teachers unions want policy set at the local level. Um, they don't want teachers being told how to teach. So you have these issues that, and by extension, the many Democrats, not all, but men, many who are beholden to them were very resentful of Duncan and King and Obama on education. Now, Republicans, um, but for different reasons. You know, Republicans are the party of local control. Federal government shouldn't be in our way. Federal government shouldn't tell local communities what to do. And so Common Core and, I mean, on the right, this is still an issue. You still have people on the right. And this is, I have a conversation at least once a day where someone's like, when is DeVos going to get rid of Common Core? is not a federal policy. <laughs> like, there's no way for her to get rid of it. Like I, I, I had this conversation with me the other day. I said, tell me what I can do to make you happy right now. Because like, there's literally no action that the federal department of education can take to do away with common core. Like it doesn't exist in the federal, you know, it states decided whether to do it and it's up to them. And so, you know, I, I had the conversation with someone like, see, like you guys are about states' rights, but now you want us to like order states not to do something? Like, so anyway. Um, so, you know, so Republicans had their reasons for hating the same stuff. And if you go back, and, you know, this has been my life, so I've read all this stuff, you can find articles that use the term unholy alliance mm -hmm. between the Tea Party and the teachers' unions. And there were actual hearings and meetings. Tea Party leaders and teachers' union leaders were like reading, like alternating reading about common core and teacher evaluation and so 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 i say all that to say like the, what you're bringing up trisha um about the federal department of education the truth is and you won't hear it lately because the democrats understandably responsibly are you know fighting everything trump's doing but like there is a bipartisan maybe not like agreement to eradicate the department but to really scale it back yeah like that is a fact so so that that's there. I don't think that's what's best. I actually think 
the federal government not managing schools, but having a stronger regulatory function would be in our country's interest. So that's, that's just the re reality. In terms of what it actually might mean to cut back, which is something I do think we're going to see. I mean, I, I feel quite confident that you're, we're gonna see a smaller Department of Education. Like I think you're right, Trisha, like that will happen. And again, it's not, although people, will, there will be talking points from the Democrats against it. There are lots of Dems that are fine with that. If it, if it downsizes in the, in the ways that they want it to. How's that gonna happen? So there are a couple things. Like one, and this is something I've learned just in the past month. So for many, many years, the federal government had a role in guaranteeing and subsidizing student loans. But the student loans were always serviced by the sector. And the government just had this role in, in guaranteeing and subsidizing for kids from low-income families so they could go to college. At some point during uh, the Obama administration, but it ballooned that the federal government became like the actual lender. As a result, the Department of Education has grown enormously because the Office of Federal Student Aid has become a, so there are 4,500 people who work in the Federal Department of Education, 1,600 of them work in federal student aid because they literally a trillion dollars of, of money to, to, uh, to students. And I can tell you, so that's one way in which it's ballooned. The other is just that dollar amount. And what has been told to me and gets talked about a lot uh, on both sides of the aisle is that if we were to look at the Office of Federal Student Aid as a bank, it would be the sixth largest bank in the country. I, having had some time now to look into federal student aid, like that office, and I don't claim to be an expert on it yet, talking to lots of people on kind of both sides, so to speak, like the current structure is really not best because the Department of Education was never created to be, you know, gives out money, oversees money, does all the things that a bank would normally do. There's a lot of quiet talk right now about moving the Department of Education, uh, sorry, the Fe federal student aid to Treasury, because Treasury is an agency that you know was designed and has lots of structures in place to oversee financial transactions. Department of Education is not. So I think that is likely to happen. It's not going to happen fast. Mm -hmm. I think it is probably best happens with some legislation that makes sure that is going to do it in a way that benefits kids and there still needs to be a role for the Department of Education in making policy around that money happen and it probably needs to happen because things are, are very messy and scary right now. Uh, and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I just think ballooned without, without like a, the, the necessary like thought and I don't know. I think, I think that probably needs to happen. So that's going to happen. And again, if it's done well, and this is where I'm hoping I can be helpful, in the position I'm in, I actually think it's, it's gonna be better for kids and for the country, again, if it's done well. That's a big if, where I can possibly influence that. Finally, <laughs> the rest of the department. So let's say we just carve those 1,600 people out. Now you have a significantly smaller department. There, there's a big question now around, so, so when you take federal student aid out, most of what the Department of Education does and what most of the 4,500 people who work there do is grant making. That is what the department primarily does. Now there's federal student aid, which is different, which I just talked about. There's the Office of Civil Rights, which is different. But outside of those two offices, it's essentially a grant making department and was designed to be such. And so 
what essentially happens is that the federal government in taxes that we all pay, some of those taxes go to the Department of Education as revenue. And then the Department of Education doles that money back out to states. Again, this is complex. I could, I've learned a lot. Like there are a lot of different grant programs. Most of it actually goes to higher ed, not K-12. Um, although a very significant amount goes to K-12. I don't know for sure if this was the original design, but like what has been the case, and I think through administrations on both sides, is the grant making is it's designed to do a couple things. One, just a recognition that it costs more to educate kids in poverty and kids with disabilities. And so the federal government, you know, kind of subsidizes, you know, states' efforts to do that. That's where most of the money goes. And what, what I should say with that, and this is where you get into why both sides of the aisle get resentful, quite resentful of the, of the department, is that, you know, there are strings tied to that money. And ah, so mm-hmm. it is used as a way to drive policy. Mm. And, you know, it's highly debatable the ways in which that money has been used to drive policy, whether A, it's, it's what their effort has been, like the aim has been one that, if done well, would help kids. That's one debate. And then B, whether it's had the effect that, that they've wanted to have. Um, and to be honest, I would stand here and say, and this is, I would have said before I worked in this job, like the answer is basically no. Like poor kids, as I said, don't get educated for the most part. Kids with disabilities don't. So, but we'll put that to the side for a second. So then there's a much smaller chunk of money. I just described are called formula grants. It's just like, it's just a math calculation. You have X number of poor kids, you get Y amount of dollars. You have X number of kids with disabilities, you get Y amount of dollars. And the, and the department doesn't have discretion over that. Does have, because it's in statute, does have discretion to some very limited extent uh, on the strings that get tied to it. There's a much smaller amount of money. And we're talking about, I think it's like 5 billion to 45 billion. So give or take 45 billion is in these formula grants. And, and we're talking about K-12 here, not higher ed. That's another thing. But, um, and then there's this 5 billion that's discretionary that the department does get to decide who gets it, why do they get it. It's comp- they are competitive grants. And states apply for it and other entities sometimes can apply for it. And that is actually, even though it's the smallest part of the pie financially, the main way in which the department tries to drive education policy. Because it says, you want this money, you got to do these things. Uh, And again, both sides of the aisle get resentful of this because they think it's the federal government dictating education policy. And they think that this is a sneaky way that the Federal Department of Education basically tries to do it anyway. And that's how they see Common Core. And that's how they see teacher evaluation. Um, And for the Democrats, that's how they see charter schools. So our people who make the argument and I hear it mostly from Republicans, although I, I would bet there are plenty of Democrats and teachers union leaders who feel the same way, that feel like this, well, everything I just described is stupid. That like, why is the federal government collecting taxes that it's just doling back out to the states the way it wants to? A Democrat would say, and I'm generalizing, but a Democrat would say, leave it at the state level where it's closer to the kids and the taxpayers. Let the state collect that and let them push it where the state wants it to go, which for teachers union means likely into teachers' paychecks. And when the federal government gets it, it's too possible that it doesn't end up in teachers' paychecks. And again, that takes us to charter schools. Like, 
The Obama administration is giving all this money to charter schools and to states to start charter schools. That's money that should be going into teachers' paychecks, union members' paychecks. So like, we don't want the federal government collecting that money and doling it out this way. We'd rather keep it at the state level. And for Republicans, you know, I think it's more just, we don't want the federal government collecting taxes. I mean, what I don't trust there is they would not be like, let's collect it at the state level. They'd be like, let's leave it in taxpayers' pockets. I mean, not that I'm against taxpayers having money, but you know what I mean. So, (laughs) so, so, that is my very long way of saying, and oh, one last thing, just on the higher ed, which is again, where most of the money goes from the Department of Education. My sense, and I don't claim to be an expert yet, but I've had a lot of briefings on it. It's basically pork. It's funding programs, and by the way, there are people who would want to shoot me for saying that on both sides you, of the aisle. You love pork, isn't it? What do you mean? Oh, we yeah, had a yeah, conversation I, I about pork, remember? Pork. Yeah, I love you came out as pro-pork, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. I did. I thought you were making a vegetarian joke, but now I now I, now I know what you're saying. I uh, wish you loved pork, real pork. No, that, you know I haven't thought about that, Chris. That isn't. I'll just have to. I'll have to reflect on that. But like, Cut, is this dope. is where I'm gonna. This is where I'm gonna edit in you saying something from the past podcast where you're like, I love pork. By the way, I think this is actually really useful context because which might, you know, I think that this is going to be useful context for us as we continue to have the conversation moving forward. This this sort of categorization that you're doing, Jason, because I do think that as we kind of as things unfold, it's good that people start at this space with this kind of grounding, at least in terms of how you're presenting the information. And then we can kind of um, talk about what these pieces are going to look like if they come up later, good reference back to it. Good. So the thing about higher ed is my understanding is the grants go to these organizations. There is a mountain of evidence that these organizations are completely ineffective. Now there are organizations that have great intentions of native American kids going to college more and poor kids going to college more. But I think is clear. And this has been for decades that this money it's a huge pot of money going to these organizations that are set up with these great missions are just not getting results. But but, like most nonprofits, I was just going to say that that is is de rigueur for nonprofits. That's true. I mean, and you know, I work at nonprofits, so I'm not hating on them willfully, but I'm just saying a lot of people are disconnected from their mission. Right. But so, but here's the thing though. So here's where there's a ton of resentment because there are nonprofits. So, there's a there's a, a a group of grants. This is the biggest bundle of grants that federal federal department of education gives. That they're called trio grants. Established, they were established to go to three types of organizations. All of which, as I said, my understanding is the research shows are ineffective. They've expanded it now. It goes to eight. It's, they're called trio grants because they went to three organizations. That's what they were called. I, I thought it was an acronym. I was trying to figure out what it stood for. I kept asking. And I literally had to look up on Wikipedia and see it's not an acronym. It's because there were three organizations that were getting it. Um, now it's been expanded to eight. But like, so, but, but the, the thing is, um, this is an area where there are nonprofits that do this work well, but because they just didn't have the political juice for whatever reason, who was on their board, et cetera, like they don't get this money. Same work with much less money, by the way where I used to work, KIPP. Like, we, this is something that I think I have data to show. Like, we do this pretty well, but with a much smaller number of kids because like, we don't get this big money. Um, so you have nonprofits that do it well, but aren't getting that money. And then you have these eight nonprofits that like, get this huge amount of money, but aren't getting anything done. 
these eight nonprofits are throughout the country. And so this is pork because as much as like I, if it looks to me like this is potentially the biggest waste of the departments and the, the country's money vis-a-vis Federal Department of Education, Congress people on both sides of the aisle will fight vehemently money that goes into their backyard. And they can point to it and say to their, their constituents, I brought this money back to help our kids, even though we know from research it's not helping the kids. A downsizing of the Federal Department of Education, depending on how it's done, A, is likely, B, even if the Dems have talking points to show that they hate Trump against it, if it was done in the way they want, they would be fine with. If it meant but that's money, my sense, is I don't think it's going to be done in the way that they want. Well, that's, I mean, and so here's you know? where my hope would be. <laughs> my hope is, in my role, that I can influence that it's done in a way leaves a better chance for kids to get a better quality education. I totally may fail. Like, I, I don't think I'm naive about it, but I think I'm, I'm much better positioned in this position than outside of government to try to influence that. I think it's going to be a very hard thing to influence from the outside. I mean, everything I just said, right? Like, it's complex. People don't know this. People don't have time to think about all this. Like, I have lots of information at my disposal. I have a lot of staff help me understand this and help execute certain things. And, like, I'm, I'm in the room for a lot of these conversations. So, all right. So I'm going to – I'll stop because I've been talking for a really long time. You really have been. And <laughs> no, this is this is all really great stuff. And as I was listening to you, I was like, you know, I'm learning – a lot. I'm learning stuff that I feel like I should have known, you know, like I, I educated myself about what the department of education does, but breaking it down the way that you did was really helpful. I know it was, it was long and it was a lot of information and anyone, if anyone's listened to this far, like, congratulations. Like this is what, (laughs) this is what participation looks like. You know what I mean? It's not always a byline. It's not always a paragraph understanding these concepts is not easy yeah let's wrap that there before we go jason what's it been like for you personally taking this job i mean Take, I, yeah go ahead go ahead mm-hmm. i i'm just I, i'm really curious about your experience because after you took the job uh you and i didn't speak for two and a half three weeks i think i just i didn't know what to say to you yeah and i was wondering if other people brought that to you and was like oh uh what the fuck jason (laughs) yeah no it's been the whole gamut a lot of people have said so glad that you were there oh my god thank god someone is there with some sense some people have said i'm really worried about you and then some people have said i can't believe you fucking took this job like you should not have taken this job and some people have said that out of out of concern for me like you're never going to get another job and some people have said you're going to be part of dismantling this country most of it has been positive but that could just be that there are a lot of people that feel negative that aren't comfortable saying it so first of all i'm really enjoying the job now 95% of the time i am in the department of education working with people there most of whom are career employees, not political appointees. It's only a very small percentage of us, I think like less than 1% right now, who are political appointees. But like, even among the political appointees, most of them, like everybody, almost everyone is there because they really care about kids and really want good policy. And they're great fun to work with, even when there's conflict. Like, and I'm in a position where I get to mediate a lot of that conflict. So I'm like loving 5% of the job I don't like is interacting with the White House. And to be honest with you, 
it's not because of bigotry because I have encountered almost none. It's not because of ideology because I haven't heard a lot of that. It's not because of policy because most of my interactions with the White House are not about policy, although some are. It's like people say they're going to get you something and they don't. People you know, get yelled at for not doing things I was never told to do. <laughs> get that, at for not that's working at an office though, isn't it? I mean, I are you so, saying that it's at, at some new level? Because that's that's my office. Well, look, I I have been the boss of organizations for a while now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I did have a boss in my last role, but just for lots of reasons, it just it it was not that dynamic. Um, I, I guess my my main point though is that um, you know there's this the, there are a lot of people reporting that the White House is chaotic. I would underscore that three times wow from my point of view now you know there's lots of stuff the white house is doing i'm not involved in but my sense from my own direct experience and then what i hear from my counterparts and other agencies who i don't talk to a lot but i talk to you let's say once a week um it is fucking chaos and i think what i hear from people who've been around the block is that every new white house is chaos but this one as you might expect is a new level of chaos so executive orders that were poorly written, executive orders that, you know, require agencies to do work that the agency didn't know about ahead of time, that I will include my, myself in that list. Um, task forces being created, you know, people being, like, it's just, it is, it is fucking chaos. Now, there are some great people at the White House. Like, there are people I'm working with that I think are awesome. I agree with on policy. People I don't agree with on policy who are competent. Like, it's all over the map. I, I would be and this, this is part of why this cannot air until I'm out of this job, but I would be job satisfaction if I did not have to interact with the White House at all. Well, that's hmm. pretty much every citizen right now, aside from the ones who voted. <laughs> 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 goodness, my life would be actually somewhat okay if I never thought about the White House again. And actually, you know what? I, I really actually think that that's going to be one of the wonderful side effects of um, a Trump presidency is that um, in some ways we're going to have to figure out how to sort of neutralize the impact of this person psychologically on us daily and in some ways figure out how to like sequester the White House off somewhere. (laughs) Similar to what's going to happen, I think, with the United States on just a global scale is that everybody, you know, other countries are meeting privately and going, okay, how the hell do we just put the U.S. in the corner as best as we can, even though they have their hands on a possible nuclear weapons, you know, like... What do we do? Because I just, you know, I think it's just when someone is chaotic like this, how does one get anything done? Just even in your own day to day life. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting to me that they have a push towards like getting the White House um, and maybe the federal government smaller and smaller and smaller. There's a part of me that is not um, unhappy with that idea. Uh, you know, oh, it's, no. Trisha, mm-hmm. what, what's happening? You know she what? has a new boyfriend. It's not no, I mean, anymore. Listen, I'm, I'm about that. I'm, I'm about, because you know what it is? When I don't mind, you don't mind a government that overreaches when you fundamentally believe that the heart and soul of that, right. of the people who are leading it have, have, have sort of good intentions. But as soon yeah. as you have a villain, you're like, just let's cut this cord. How do we like, how do we tie off this? <laughs> how do we tie, how we create a tourniquet here? Do you know what I mean? So it's just like, I just, I, I'm fine with the idea of a very, very streamlined federal government. Um, because I actually just, even just in terms of the future move, in terms of even moving forward, I want more of the states to 
concretely make decisions that are going to impact its citizens. Because I do think the makeup of the citizenry is really different and have really different needs. And I, if that's if that's how we can become to, a little bit more efficient, and Trump is really the sort of the monster in the room that's invited that for us, I think it's really, it's, it's a great question for us to have. I mean, I think for a really long time, Democrats have been really comfortable with the idea of the federal government um, somehow have taking the lead on things. To be on this other side and be asking questions about what states should get a handle on and maybe um, on the local level even, I think, and the increased need for civic education even more so. I'm all for that, really. The, yeah, the counter art, well, no, it's not a counter art. Yeah. What I would say is, and this is what we all know, but we, people who value diversity and equity, um, really need to get much better organized. If that's the world we're going towards, and it probably is, and maybe you're right, Trisha, maybe in the long run it is better. But we know 100 years ago, like, that was terrible. Sure it was. A lot of people. I think you're right. The makeup of the country is different. But as we were just saying, the states are in the hands of Republican legislatures and not even to demonize Republicans. They're in, they're in their hands in many cases. North Carolina is a prime example of Republican legislatures that were elected with by special interest, like by with enormous influence from special interests. The only way to combat that is to have the collective interest be a stronger voice. And that takes a ton of organization. So, Except in some ways, the person, the, the people who are sort of leading the country in terms of local organizing, particularly the, you know, the Moral Monday folks came out of North Carolina. So in reaction to sort of the trend that was in North Carolina, there's really been a strong um, organizing endeavor that has been happening in North Carolina. So I think that's kind of that fat, that's a fascinating tension. But it's also really helpful to think about like, listen, that means that I don't have to go to this state. This might, you know, this means that this state is an unwelcoming state and you can make decisions about that. When you sort of make the entire United States unwelcoming, which is what it is for people who are abroad now and trying to contemplate whether they should come into the country. It's a real, you know, I mean, like it's. um, Yeah, but do we want to, do we want the kind of system where people are evaluating that there's parts of the country that are just completely diametrically opposed to other parts of the country? It is. It's already. Right. Yeah, that, that is a fact, Chris. Like, I, I understand. I understand fact. that it is. But should we support that through policy, culture, and custom, or should yeah. we push back against that? I mean, I think we have to do both. I think we have to do the two prong thing. I mean, there are reasons why people will move to California versus moving to Texas, and mm-hmm. I think that should be obvious and clear. And I think you can work on that. I believe that we are living in a more truthful moment because maybe, maybe frighteningly a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, it seemed like um, it was useful for us to focus on the federal level, right? Because the idea is you have a, you can influence a smaller number of people, right? But I actually Mm -hmm. think that now, I think that more, there are more people who congregate in spaces around comparable values that should be encouraged. And I think that's happening at the state level. I don't think it's happening on a federal level. It's harder, I think, to have an impact at a federal level than it is on a state level. That's I, the, that's the I like that. I like that. And I do think if there, if there is going to be a net positive of the Trump administration, the Trump presidency. Mm, here we go. I think that's our best shot is that it is so offensive and dangerous and threatening and harmful to so many people that – people are inspired to organize and act in truly effective ways. 
Well, well, I think this this is the most organized and um I mean people are talking the town halls just even informally if you look at town halls people have never come to as many of them as they are now. You know, because I think because for a long time I think in some sense when you focus so far on the head or the federal government and not understanding how things play out on a very local level, I think it really encouraged um a kind of disinterest and dispassion, dispassionate um, sort of feelings around uh, laws and how the government impacts your life. But for the first time, I see a lot of people kind of coming to terms with, oh my God, this is going to have a direct impact on my life. I mean, even if it's just around the language around Obamacare, for people to suddenly understand, oh my God, this is what this this law means for me. I didn't know this and for them to be sort of awakened to that and then try to then push back at the one place they have which is their own local constituent you know what I mean it's their own local government they're going to I think that there's I think that's a net good I really do um it's too bad we needed a boogeyman for it but isn't that how everything works you need a boogeyman (laughs) yeah the the tea party needed theirs and they got it in (laughs) Obama Although you know it's funny, I like the I like the new language that's emerging. That it's about it's beyond the Tea Party. That the Tea Party actually learned from the Democrats and took their principles. Because what I hate about the Tea Party is that the Tea Party was essentially about inequality, really. And so I hate using it as a model for anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm, and I didn't mean to suggest we no, should I use know, a model, but, but they know, they, but they reacted to, <laughs> as Bill Maher would say, President Blackenstein, and yes. so. <laughs> Sure. I feel this blackness is going to sweep the land. <laughs> really, that's what they were afraid of, right? Blackness was seeking the land. I actually saw really. I, I actually saw an explicit quote in a piece about white identity, and this person explicitly said aloud that he felt like the country was going into a direction where um, people of color were feeling empowered. And oh, that, and that meant, I know, it's really interesting. We've worked so hard for that not to happen. How I know. Happening? How could this happen? He thought that people of color were feeling empowered, which necessarily meant that his, um, his life circumstances were going to be detrimentally impacted. And that is why he voted. He voted around his white identity, which no one ever talks about. And I love yeah, that. that. That's an I love answer. that he said that. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> It's funny because um, it's not very often that white supremacy can be tangible to people. Yep. And when you say it out loud, I think even a, lo- a lot of liberal white people will will wonder, there is there's meaning there. Yep. White and identity. One, yeah. And when you say it out loud, it's it's clear like, oh, well, why would that guy be upset about black people being empowered? Well, of course he's upset because it's not about anyone being in power other than white men. So I, I like it. And it's also a zero sum game for him, right? Like the idea is that clearly, if I'm in clearly. one person's on top, <laughs> you know, what I mean? it couldn't be that we could all be empowered. No, no. no, no, no. <laughs> Let's have him on a future episode. I, we all seem to like this guy a lot. <laughs> it was a really, but you know what? What I like too is that he said white identity. He didn't use white supremacy, which of course is the next step. But I think it's actually an easy, easier step for people to ident- to, to to talk about identity politics for themselves, even among liberals. It's like, what is the white identity that you are keying in on? And because That's a great point. Don't have that conversation. I think they hate the like, they hate the word white supremacy, so they abandon, so they stay away from it. But what if we just introduce the idea of white identity? Say, let's talk about the white identity issue for you. I have a black identity. I have a gender identity issue. What's yours as a white 
female? What's well, yours as a white male? That's difficult because white identity is always defined as um, reducing opportunities or taking things away from other people. This is why white people in general get very nervous around like uh, black pride or black lives matter because asserting one's identity for white people is always subjugating other people. So when they hear black people proud about being black, they become afraid that we will do what they do. Yeah. But I think uh, this is why I think it's a sad thing that um, white liberals have ceded the white identity conversation to, to the right. It's a, because that's a very they, good point. You know, they could introduce the idea of white identity as something that's more inclusive, that's more about um, everyone getting a piece of something as opposed to a kind of hierarchical structure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but they've left white identity to the only because think about that, though. Think about let me just think about that. The only people who talk about white identity are white supremacists. Why don't yeah. liberals talk about it? What the, the quality and state of being white should yeah. not be just left to people who want to lord it over others. Exactly. Well, then, you know, the answer is white guilt and the fear of being identified with white supremacists. I'm not enough enough of this. Enough of that shit. Okay. All right, white people, (laughs) you're not in elementary school anymore. Okay. You know what I mean? It's not either or get, get with the program. Get the balls to put your shit out there and explain (laughs) it. But so, you know oh what? But isn't this the, isn't this isn't this the Thanksgiving conversation though? Isn't this the very thing? It's like in your intimate spaces, you're not having a conversation about your identity as a white person. You're not right, and so you've left it to you. Lo- you've left it to the crazy uncle or the Nazi in the basement because they're the only yeah. ones saying it out loud. Meanwhile, every single person is talking about their identity because they understand that identity matters. Um, and if yeah. you don't have a space to talk about that identity in an inclusive way. Um, which is really your job. You know, black people talk about identity and we we understand the value of that. Asians, everybody's trying to begin to embrace that, not to, you know, not to de-emphasize anyone else's, but just to kind of raise themselves up. You need to find a space where you can raise the white identity up without having oppression as part of it. <laughs> what would that look like? I have no idea. <laughs> well, that's, that, was, uh, that was Baldwin's question at the end of I Am Not Your Negro, isn't it? Exactly. What are you white people without black people to look down upon? What is right. it? That's what? the faces at the bottom of the well. Yeah. Yeah. Who are you? How would you define yourself? All right. So we've gone far afield. I just Ooh, want to, uh, I'm going to wrap this up and mm-hmm. say, Jason, thank you for coming back for this. Thanks for having me. They, I really no, appreciate please. it. I'm serious. I mean, th- thanks serious. for being back. I mean, it was great to get this inside look in your t- time at um, the sec- uh, the department of education and uh yeah and and let's keep the conversation going let's absolutely keep the conversation going so uh jason we'll talk to you soon so we are back in the present so what we're going to do is we're going to break for today and then next week that's right next this coming monday you will hear the rest of our conversation happening in the present time where we check in with jason about how corrupted he's been in his time in the trump administration uh spoiler alert lots (laughs) (laughs) all right everyone bye bye bye